Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. This is episode 12, and I'm going to keep the introduction fairly brief today because it is a little bit of a longer interview and discussion. Um, but you know what? I'm really going to tell you to give it the time, spend the time to listen to this. Uh, I'm going to be speaking today with Christopher Porter, who was the really the, the creative force behind Audrey's Diary, which was a record label that started here in the early 90s in Detroit, actually in Michigan, not necessarily Detroit. And what's really cool about this is there's connections to a lot of the other artists and other labels that we've already discussed on this podcast, as well as kind of going back into, frankly, the 60s and 70s a bit, uh, where Christopher talks a little bit about some of those influences that he had, not only in his own music, but also in the label. Uh, Audrey's Diary was the home of only six releases, six proper releases, which, you know, you might be wondering why I would dedicate all this time to a record label that really only had six releases, but they're really a really an interesting set of releases and set of artists, uh, many of whom were fairly big in the scene at that point, and then others who became uh, pretty quintessential to the scene moving forward. So I'm not going to spend too much time here, like I said, talking about Christopher, talking about his label, and instead I'd rather just get into it. So today, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please give it the time that it deserves. And we're going to go ahead and talk to Christopher Porter, founder of Audrey's Diary.
Okay, so you just heard Throw Eggy from the Bridge by Black Tambourine. Uh, this was the first release on Audrey's Diary. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to Christopher Porter, the man behind Audrey's Diary. Uh, I have to admit, this is a little bit of a fanboy uh, interview and discussion for me because I've really been a huge, huge fan of the label, uh, really since its inception. Uh, it just meant a lot to me. I really I see it as... And I don't know how what Chris's opinion is going to be, but you know it was short lived. But at the same time, I really feel like it was an important independent label. Uh, it was founded here, right here in Michigan. And uh, Chris, thanks for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. Thank you um, for for being curious. Thirty years later, <laughs> that seems like that's been my theme lately. Is you know going in the time machine. But you know, I think you know a lot of as you know. I mean, music during your you know, late teens, early twenties does leave an impression on you. And, and, you know, I just, it really has left an impression on me and a lot of these singles I still play and a lot of them mean a lot to me. So, you know, this is going to be a little different today than my other episodes. And I think, I think you can, you know, I think you'll be okay with this because there was really only six releases. I thought it'd be a lot of fun to just kind of go through and talk a little bit about each one and, and, you know, a little bit about how they came about or what their meaning was. And I, I, I don't know. I just thought it was different. So if you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It'll help um, jog my own memories. Cause I, I've really not had a chance to talk about the label ever. I'm not even sure when it was going on. Um, I ever did an interview about it and because it's not it, other than people uploading the stuff to the YouTube to YouTube. And there was a blog that, um, had a lot of the stuff on there you know it's just sort of been it's because of people like you who have sort of kept the memory alive um it's you know there's been no organized effort on my part to keep the music or even the memories uh at the forefront so i'm more than happy to dig up all that stuff with you i think it's going to be fun because of that so you know I, you know you started audrey's diary in 92 uh which for me i i was 18 and again, like I just mentioned, I mean, I think a lot of the music that comes out when you're at that age usually means a lot to you. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think on the flip side of that, you know, whatever fashion you were wearing at that time tends to be something you wear long term, too. Um, <laughs> but the music meant a lot to me. And, you know, we, we you kind of kicked off the label with Black Tambourine, who we heard a, a little bit ago. And uh, we heard the A side. And really, for those of you who aren't familiar and my guess is that most of the people listening to this podcast are uh you know black tambourine was i guess an early what i would consider super group to some degree uh you know it featured archie and brian from velocity girl uh mike from whirl and who happens to be also the the founder of slumberland uh it also featured you know the ubiquitous and i, and I love that term for her pam berry because she seemed like she was kind of everywhere at that time and obviously after as well. I guess I wanted to know from you what your experience was really kicking off the label with that release. Well, I had been buying Slumberland Records. Um, I don't remember. Maybe it was the first Velocity Girl single um, and then Slumberland number one or maybe my first two. Mm -hmm. And... Then the Black Tambourine single, I think, was it was pretty early on in some of the discography because uh, Black Tambourine was concurrent to early Velocity Girl, I believe. Like Brian had not joined Velocity Girl yet. They were still a four piece. Mm. And I believe Whirl was still con 
was still going and maybe big Jesus trash can. I, you know, it was, it was just, um, it was a group of people in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is um, a suburb of Washington, DC, like literally um, where vinyl ink records was uh, the, the DC border was a mile away or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really a scene that was around that, that record store. And also the, uh, they were all, uh, many of them were uh, university of Maryland students. Mm. So they were just, you know, playing in each other's bands. Uh, I, I, I mean, it is a super group in retrospect. I think at the time it was literally like, do you want to do this type of, you know, <laughs> do you want to do a noise band? Do you want to do a noise pop band? Do you want to do an indie pop band? And that was the group of uh, folks you played with. Um, so I got the Black Tambourine single and I liked it. And I'm fairly certain I reviewed it in, in, in my fanzine uh, Emily's hip pocket, or potentially it was Pinky's hip pocket, which was the first two issues, and then, or even potentially Brass Neck, which was the first one I did. Oh, jeez. Um, I, I did that with um, my ironic like bandmate, Tim Sendra. Um, mm. So I reviewed it, and I probably, you know, sent, sent Slumberland uh, the review or wrote to them or something. And, uh, and Pam was the one that wrote back. <laughs> and so we uh, struck up a friendship, um, like like Pam did with a lot of people um, via mail. And at that point, uh, she had said that they had that uh, Black Tambourine had recorded, um, you know, more song like a full demo. And then the ones that the songs that ended up on the seven inch uh, were the only ones that people knew about. So um, when I found out that they had some unreleased stuff. Um, and, and like really high quality unreleased stuff, it, yeah. you know, um, I was at the time I was, uh, you know, I was corresponding with tons of people in the indie rock scene. And one of my uh, close friends across the country uh, was Clint Barnes, oh, sure. um, who did he did four letter words fanzine and he did another one, um, Amish Ways. Mm. And. So he and I were talking, and then another person, Jennifer Silver, who I'm pretty sure Jennifer did a fanzine, although I'm drawing a blank on the name. She was in a band called The Eiffel Tower, or I can't remember, something about The Eiffel Tower. And so we, you know, it was just, um, I don't, I know she was in California. I, I think she and Clint were both in Northern, like, Clint was San Jose. I'm not sure. She was San, San Francisco. So they may have known each other a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, it was primarily just, we, we sort of, I, it's funny to think this could even occur pre-internet, but somehow we had a three-way dialogue about starting a record label. <laughs> and I don't remember if it was over phone and I, I didn't have three-way calling. So I don't know <laughs> if we, you know, I don't know, shared information and then one person would call the other person, or if we did it over, um, mail or not but um yeah we decided to pull our money together to form uh the label to put out the black tambourine single i'm not sure we had you know big plans beyond that um a lot of the consideration for for doing it together was just to cut the costs sure um to split up the cost three ways and that's why you see on the labels for um audrey's diary the uh catalog numbers are psb yeah. Um, I remember Kristen Thompson from 
from Simple Machines Records once asked me, does, does that stand for Pet Shop Boys? <laughs> I said, well, I'm a big Pet Shop Boys fan, but no, it stands for Porter Silver Barnes, Jennifer Silver and Clint Barnes. And really? Myself. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And so when we, so then when we decided to launch the label, um, I was new to it. Clint may have done flexies before. I can't even remember. I think Jennifer was new to it. Um, but I, I, I ended up kind of taking the lead on it um, only because I was in touch with Pam. I mean, I'm sure we were all in touch with Pam, but I, I was, a, I just had, it was one of those things. I just sort of took it upon myself to do it. And I, I was a graphic designer um, as well. And I worked at a print shop and I was like, oh, well, I can print the covers. I can design it. So I just sort of took it over. And I remember putting together the label, like the, the 45, uh, you know, circular label that's affixed sure. to the record. Um, and the reason why it says from Lala to LA, mm -hmm. I believe that's what it says. It's because I was putting it together during the LA riot. I never knew that. So, yeah. But we, so we, it was, it was literally, we just found out black tambourine, a band we all loved had unreleased music and we wanted to go for it. Well, you know what? I mean, that, that's, what's cool about it. I mean, you know, I think a couple, couple interviews back from me, I mean, when I talked to Matt Jacobson of, of the grand magistery, which funny enough, we actually slept at Pam Berry's house for one of the, uh, indie pop list festivals in Washington. The one that snowed out the famous, uh, 96 festival. And that was the only time I ever met Pam and she was so great. Yes. Yeah. She was a linchpin. I mean, in, I mean, I ended up moving to Washington DC in spring of 94. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it was really because, and it was because, uh, I was looking for a job after college. I was, a, I wanted to be, I wanted to work for, um, magazines or newspapers, whether it was as a designer or a writer. And I wasn't having luck in Michigan or in Chicago. Um, and so Pam said, you, you know, there's a job here at the Washington city paper, which is the alternative weekly in mm -hmm. DC. And you could work in the ad department and I'm sure you could start writing for um, the newspaper. And, you know, it's basically if you're a warm body in the building and you raise your hand, uh, you know, it's, it's a good way to get your foot in the door if you want to be a writer. Sure. Um, and so I ended up, yeah, p you know, picking up and moving and, and it was nice to have a little, um, scene of friends, uh, music scene to move to, um, in addition to being able to move, uh, into work for a publication, which Pam worked for as well. And she got, she ended up getting so many job or people jobs at the, at the newspaper <laughs> in a variety of departments. She was, I remember she worked in the classifieds department. So a lot of us also worked to classified ads. We answered phones at the front desk, designers, writers, you know, a lot, of, a lot of different things. So she was really responsible for bringing me down there, which ultimately is where I met my wife. And so, you know, bless Pam. She's, she, she was, she brought a lot of people together. She made a lot of things happen. And um, even though she moved to London within a couple of years of me moving down there, obviously she she was a huge influence on my life um mm -hmm. and uh pam if you're listening to this thank you i hope she is <laughs> uh that was great i mean i love i love hearing that story i mean i didn't know a lot of those pieces of that and i i obviously do own all of the uh audrey's diary releases here and they do get they do get 
pretty frequent rotation uh, here at Vinyl Detroit. Uh, so that's a really cool story. You know, I guess I kind of mentioned, you know, early on in, in that, that, you know, there was only really six records that you released over the course of, of two years, but the lineup was really solid. I mean, the choices that you made were really, really good. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, after you did that first single, like you said, I mean, we really didn't have a, a vision for the label and we just wanted to put out, you know, something by our friends or put out Black Tambourine. Once you got that first one out there or, and you were starting to work on other releases, did you have like a vision where you wanted to take it? Um, well, it was certainly exciting. It was great to, um, I don't know. I, you know, I was so inspired by the independent music scene, um, but both in America and in Europe and England. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to be a part of it. It's, you know, like you were saying, it's, it's an age where you're searching, you're trying to find your place in the world. And I found the, so all these subculture scenes of, of you know, punk rock, indie rock, um, ambient, you know, experimental stuff. It was just, it was all, I just found it much more like most people who end up doing DIY things. You just feel like I can do this. I want to be a part of this. And so much of the DIY scene is simply because it exists. They're just, they're not passive about it. You know, you're not just a listener of music. Typically you're doing something else, whether you're writing about music or you're releasing your own music or you're in your own bands and things like that. Um, I mean, certainly that exists, but from, from my experience and certainly the type of brain I have, if, if, if something interests me, I want to be a part of it. I don't, I don't want to be a passive um, participant. Sure. So I didn't, I didn't, a, after the single came out, it was great. A lot of people um, seemed to enjoy it. We were getting good feedback. It was tricky to run a label from California and Michigan. So from I believe from the second release on, it was entirely me. I, I don't think Clint and Jen did anything with the second release. Um, but I did have, it wasn't an Audrey's Diary release, but I did have a previous experience of, of co-releasing a record. Um, uh, so I was in a band called Veronica Lake, which I think we'll be talking about soon, but I was in that band with um, Tim, Tim Sendra, and Scott Kelly. And Tim Sendra had a brother, Scott Sendra, who I was also in a band with, with Scott Kelly. Um, And that was called Down. And we released our first single and it was a co-release of Scott's Sendra's record label, Bonehead Rex. And then at that time, I I just used my fanzine name, Emily's Hip Pocket. So it was like Emily's Hip Records or something like that. so I had a little experience on a local level, but it, w- it was pretty much stayed local. Black Tambourine is, was something that kind of reached over into, you know, the, the English fanzine scene and the American indie scene, and it got some some notice. So, it, so it was more. So I don't think I had a vision after that. It was just something like, okay, I wanted to do another release. This was fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I I like that approach. I mean. It seems like there's there's a theme in the music that I like, and and maybe it is that DIY, and it's it's people that really pour everything they've got into it, and you know, similar to what you know, kind of how you answered the question was, you really didn't have a vision. I mean, you had interest, you had obviously skills in terms of design and, and musician musicianship, and that kind of led you and and uh, 
that seems like that's a common theme, at least for me, of music that I like. I mean, going into it, not like, hey, this is what we're going to do. It was more like, we're going to do this and we love it and we have all of our heart and energy behind it. And now we're going to go do this and we have it. I guess I kind of like that. And maybe that's a, a common theme for me, at least. That was really, really good. You know, I, I, I mentioned I mentioned early on uh, that the lineup was really, really strong. But I also think that it was really diverse. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned Sarah and, and Sarah, I mean, and you mentioned the Golden Dawn, which is really interesting because I feel like that's a little bit of a departure from kind of what Sarah was really known for. Mm -hmm. But, you know, your six releases, I mean, they were they were really pretty different and they touched on a lot of different genres and and sounds. I mean, you had kind of classic indie pop there. You had the infamous now space rock type theme. You had all kinds of stuff. And I guess one thing I wanted to know with with acts that are that diverse was was there a connection to these acts on the label or a connection to these decisions to put them out? And then I guess the second part of that question is really. How did you go about the decision to put out each release? I mean, what kind of criteria went into deciding I was going to put out the Bomb Pops record or I was going to put out, um, I mean, Veronica Lake's easy, but I was going to put out the Asha Vida record. Well, it was always based on whether or not I, I liked it, um, period. There, um, in terms of the diversity, it was, it was only, be, it, that's, it simply reflects like where, how, I listen to music. I mean, mm -hmm. I, um, I literally listen to every genre. I go into Jags, uh, for, you know, for one week, it'll be just reggae for the next week. It'll be death metal, <laughs> you know, one week it's indie pop. It's like, so there was never going to be, um, uh, a sonic aesthetic to the label. Um, just because my, my listening tastes don't, um, don't exist within fairly tight genre things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I understand why, pe and, and I'm sure most people listen to a bazillion different things, but record labels tend to, you know, stay within a certain lane and it makes sense financially. And certainly back then it was very helpful to have, uh, you know, a label like Sarah, you just sort of bought the record site on scene because you sort of generally knew what you were in for. Mm -hmm. And if you were down with that, then you're trusting Claire and Matt, you know, to provide something that, you know, is going to be high quality. Right. So, uh, you know, it, the label is never uh, like, like virtually every label at that time, it was not, um, there was no sort of long-term vision and there was certainly no financial incentives to do. And it was, it was just about what I wanted to release. Um, I mean, if you want to go, we, we could go uh, release by release, then I could tell you where, how I came up, uh, yeah, came to release those records. Um, I have one more before we start going through the releases, and it was really, I guess, and, and we've we've talked about some labels here already. I'm I'm a big label fan. I mean, I think, you know, like for financial reasons, and and for just even the. I guess it probably comes from the love of the the founders, but you know, I really I I look at Sarah for instance, or you would look at the, maybe the earlier four AD, where I mean there was somewhat of a stamp of approval or seal of approval that, you know, if you were to buy that, that most likely if you liked the other releases, you would like this release, and it, it's it's interesting with yours because, like, it's a little different. It's almost like if you like what I've put out, then 
you'll like what I put out. But guess what? It could be pretty different than what you've already heard. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and, and I found that too, because, because as you're, as you're, as the releases were coming out from you, I mean, I bought them. I didn't, I didn't know a lot of these acts and everything and I'd buy it and I'd listen to it. And a lot of times I'd be like, hmm, not really sure yet, but the more I would listen to it, the more I'd be like, okay, you know what? I, I like this. And now this is something new for me that I've never heard. And I think that's exciting. So I guess where I was kind of going with that really long uh, intro was, are there any other, and I know there probably is, but what labels really inspired you at the time when you were, when you were putting these records together? I'm sure there were some labels you were listening to. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Sarah records was a big one, um, for multiple reasons. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I really think, I don't know, at least 30 records deep into the catalog, there was not a single bad thing they released for sure. Um, and you could even argue that they never really released a bad record, but wh- where I sort of fell off is when a lot of bands who obviously were inspired by Sarah records were releasing records on Sarah records. Yep. Um, whereas I didn't, I didn't have a firm grasp of where those early Sarah bands, what their influences were. And part of that was my own musical ignorance. Uh, part of it is because they had synthesized their weird sixties pop, <laughs> um influences into kind of a new thing so sarah was huge I, I but there was also uh in the u.s i mean it was more the more the approach and the aesthetic like simple machines i think was a huge thing i, I wasn't always a fan of what they released but it was it was their approach uh, you know to packaging again they came out of discord which was a huge influence on me as a, as a teenager so that you know it was the simple machines merge touch and go even um how about slumberland what was slumberland at the time slumberland was as well it's funny like it's funny that it didn't come to mind right away but yeah yeah obviously that was that was a that was a thing as well i i think with um i think with slumberland it felt like you know the releases would come kind of come and go in spurts Mm -hmm. so um but yeah certain Certainly, um, Mike, I mean, the, the Ron Clake single that Audrey's Diary ended up putting out was actually supposed to be a Slumberland release. Really? So, yeah. So, um, yeah, Slumberland definitely. To a much smaller degree, Teen Beat. Um, again, not a huge fan of everything they put out. I was, you know, I loved Unrest. Sure. Um, but, again, like, I loved the fact that Mark was so inspired by Factory Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was cool the way he sort of took off from factory records and put his own spin on it um so i mean again i i'm saying like simple machines and and teen beat uh and merge and but at the same time saying it's not like i liked everything well it's because they had the same release mindset as i did which is like if we like it we'll put it out even if it doesn't sync up with what we've put out previously Yep. Those are the biggest influences on me label wise. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think, yeah, maybe the, you know, every release they did, obviously, you know, it, it's hard to connect, especially like some of those labels were pretty prolific. I mean, in terms of yeah. the releases, I mean, they, some of those put out a lot of material and you, know, you just won't connect with everything, but I, I, it makes sense that, you know, your philosophy aligned with theirs and that's probably why they had some influence on you. So, you know, I, I guess this is the part I was really looking forward to at this point. I wanted to make sure that, you know, anybody who wasn't familiar with the label uh, kind of had a little idea of, of, of where it came from. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the first release, but 
Uh, I'd like to get into obviously some of those other ones. And you know, the next release that came out was the Bomb Pops uh, seven inch, and I think it's titled Paler, but I know that's the A side. I I love them. I I love that that early '90s Minneapolis scene. I mean, Jim Ruiz and um, boy, there were a couple. I mean, obviously like the replacements. I mean, there was a lot that was going out going on there at the time. And um, I went online just kind of preparing for this, and you know, I looked up the bomb pops and I wanted to kind of get some of their history and there was a really nice article somebody did. So, you know, if, if, if you like what you're going to hear in a second from the bomb pops, their history is kind of neat. And when you read it, they could, they did way more in terms of detail than we could do here today. Um, but you know, similar to Veronica Lake, which, you know, obviously was your band with, with, you know, Tim and the boys. Uh, I, I always kind of wondered why bomb pops didn't release more music. It does. That article does talk about that because it's all really, really good. How did you come about uh, that connection to them and, and eventually putting out that record? They sent me a demo. Um, I'm not sure if they had gotten the Black Tambourine record or if they had seen my fanzine, Emily's Hip Pocket. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they sent me a demo. And the funny part is that the two songs that are on the B side, which are of the, of the Audrey Sari 7-inch, are instrumental and from what I recall is they, that, that those were kind of, they, they were surprised when those are the songs I picked. Um, <laughs> I think they had wanted to do the, the song paler and then like another, uh, another song on the B side. But um, I was just a huge fan. I'm, I'm a huge fan of felt mm -hmm. and uh, Maurice D bank uh, felt guitarist through the first several records. Sure. Um, I think it's just a tremendous guitarist and, and those, and, um, you know, felt did a lot of instrumentals mm -hmm. and I just felt like the bomb pop record instrumentals. It just reminded me of felt in the best possible way. And I, I just preferred them to the, the songs, the other songs in the demo or the other song, I can't remember at this point, um, that had vocals. Uh, so yeah, so that, and, and I believe they, they may have wanted to, have me put out a second single um i can't quite remember but i again i just felt like I, for me the the strongest material they released was or th that i remember hearing was the stuff i released mm. it was one of those things they sent me a demo yeah i have i have that compilation cd of theirs uh who knows where i got it from a million years ago but i mean it's it's so good i mean like I, I don't know. I mean, I wish I wish they would have done more. But again, if you're if you want to know more about the bomb pops, I don't mean to do an in, uh, you know an infomercial for that article, but it really does lay out pretty well, uh, kind of what happened and and why they why they ultimately didn't didn't stick around. And it's it's really too bad. I mean, I thought it was really good, and this single is is really really good. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a listen to the uh, the song Paler, which was the second release on Audrey's Diary from Bomb Pops. Uh, the title track was Paler, and uh, it features really the band performing, you know, the title track of the single. And I just, I love the guitar work on this. And it's funny you said felt because I really didn't put that connection together, but that's definitely present on the B side. Um, the vocals are great on this thing. Uh, so again, from the second release on Audrey's Diary, we're going to give a listen to Paler by Bomb Pops. <laughs>
So the next single uh, that came out was by Asha Vida, and it was uh, it was headed up mainly by Craig. There were obviously other guys in the band. I saw them live myself. I think you might have actually been there. It was um, back in St. Clair Shores. There was a little coffee house. It was Rubles or Ruples or something. Was it Zoots? No, this was down in St. Clair Shores on Harper. And okay, I mean we're probably talking ninety four or so, and it was like a like a coffee house. You remember that that scene and. Yeah, I think I think you may have played solo. I, I'm just kind of going back in memory here, but I remember Ashavita played, and uh, it was a really cool show because obviously it was really small. It was like a coffee house, but um, was Wendy? Did Wendy and Carl play then? They may have. They may have. Because yeah. I think I have a. If if that's the same show, I I did play a solo show with Wendy and Carl and Ashavita, and I I have a videotape of that. Um, but I I I also know that Ashavita played. Z- Zoots, uh, which I think was a coffee house. Yeah, for sure. Down there. Yeah, Zoots, uh, you know, Zoots, it's funny because Zoots has played a, a small role in this podcast. It seems like a lot of the people I've spoken to have either played at Zoots, heard of Zoots, saw a show at Zoots. But, I mean, really, it was it was a pretty legendary place at the time. I mean, particularly for the type of music that I know I liked. Yeah. Um, I know we played there with Shoestrings, Mario and Rose, at least once we may have played twice but i mean it was really cool for those you know those of you who've been there maybe you haven't i mean it's basically a house in detroit not the uh not the best neighborhood in detroit um but basically you know you would you kind of play in the living room you're you're back to the bay window and you would be facing back into the room and it was it was a coffee house but it was kind of like the who's who of, of of indie pop indie rock at the time and um yeah there were a lot of good shows there for sure uh so you know this this next single that we are going to talk about by Asha Vida, it's it's hard to it's hard to kind of put to words the sound. Uh, I hate to use something kind of cliche here, but hauntingly beautiful with question marks around it. But what was interesting was the tie-in to Third Man, and so you know when Third Man put out the um, the wonderful uh, Southeast of Saturn compilation, this track showed up on it, uh, as well as another track that I think we're going to hear later as well. Um, the, the lead track was titled Eskimo Summer. I personally think it's one of the finest moments for the label. Uh, obviously, Craig went on to, to form Pascal, uh, where he did two great EPs, two LPs for the Grand Magistery. How did you get connected with Craig and Asha Vida? So that was, it was like one of those serendipitous moments where, um, I'm so thankful that we stumbled across each other because Craig and I are still friends to this day. Um, yes. He even like a week ago, he sent me a song. He goes, I need your bass on this. And I'm like, <laughs> God, you know, uh, the problem is that Craig and I have done that for 30 years now and, and no songs ever get finished. But, oh, um, but so I was shopping in Royal Oak at an antiques place. I believe I was looking for something for my girlfriend for, I don't know, her birthday or something. (laughs) And there was um, this guy sitting behind the counter and he was playing Luna uh, on the stereo. And I said, oh, this is Luna. I'm, you know, a big fan of Galaxy 500. My my band really, you know, takes a lot from Galaxy 500. And it was like instantly we just started chatting and we had tons of the same interests uh, musically. Um, he's a funny guy. 
it was just we hit it off immediately. But basically, I, I met Craig at the at the um, antique store. I invited his band to open for us, and we just hit it off. We've been friends ever since. And for a while, uh, for a little while, I even played bass in Ashavita when they lost their bass player. Really? Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, you know, they were just a great group of guys. I'm still friends with Craig and um, Eric Petey, who was the guitarist. I'm sure. still friends with them to this day. Yeah, that that, that release is really neat. And I, I was so, I mean, for selfish reasons, I, you're probably going to laugh at this, but I was I was really happy it came out on Southeast of Saturn because, frankly, I was I was happy to, to own it uh, digitally. I mean, like mm-hmm. a nice, clean version because, I I mean, I think my... Audrey's diary version is is a little worn out. I mean, I used to listen to that all the time, and when I heard it on there, and I think I think Warren mastered and remastered a lot of those songs, and I mean, did such a great job on it, just brought them alive. Uh, you know, oh, so, he did. Yeah. He did tremendous. I, I I can't say enough about the way he. Oh, I know. Cleaned up the the sonic mess that of stuff he got, he <laughs> got in. <laughs> um, he. Um, he most I, I think a good portion of those records he or those tunes he he had to master off the seven inches. Um, I, the funny part is is when they were putting that together, Craig actually said, "Do you have the do you have the DAT of the Ashavid Eskimo Summer EP?" Mm-hmm. And I did. Wow. And I said, "Yeah, just have them contact me. I'll get it to them." And I never heard from the people at Third Man. And so then when I saw the record actually come out and, and there was a trailer for it, I don't know if you saw it on YouTube, and yep. it actually had. Eskimo Summer as the as the song um, yep. with the trailer, and I my jaw dropped because I could not believe how good it sounded. Because, um, like many people in the early '90s, uh, we got our records. We I got the Audrey Zary records pressed at um, United yep. uh, Pressing Plant in Nashville, and I swear, like the, you know, to there was like sawdust inside of every vinyl <laughs> mixture. I mean, just, they just compressed the heck out of it and it just was yeah. not great quality vinyl. And, and the Dasha Vita record just, you know, it sounds very undynamic compared to, you know, the, the way the song is and uh, the type of band they were. Yep. Yep. The fact that Warren was able to pull out some of the dynamic nature of the band uh, just by mastering from a seven inch was astounding. So, um, yeah, I don't know why they didn't ask me for the DAT, but frankly, it was unnecessary with the job he did. Yeah, it's fu- it's funny you bring that story up because I did. I don't remember what caused me to to write him. Uh, I don't know if it was just like a hey, just great job on on that mastering. And he wrote me back, and he did tell me that story that a lot of those were seven inches. And he, you know, he's, you don't warn him. He's got a really really cool sense of humor. And yeah, the, the spectacle single uh, was I I own that one. And I think I said to him something like, yeah, you know, when I critically listen to, uh, you know, what you did on that, it it sounds like, you know, it sounds a little different than my seven. And she's like, you know what? Stop right there. He's like, please don't. And he's being funny, of course, but please don't, you know, critique that work. He was because I had to do all the many of those songs off of seven inches. And I was I was just like you. I was like, are you serious? Like, I'm be honest with you right now. I'm very surprised that that Ashavita song was done off a seven inch because you're exactly right. I mean, how you can improve on something like that. I don't, I don't really even understand, but he definitely did. I mean, that is, I mean, it it brings you closer to seeing them live. There's no doubt. Yeah. Really, really good. 
So, yep. you know, I, I guess I, we've talked a lot about this release. It is one of my favorites on the label for sure. Um, I think it, it really fits kind of squarely, I guess, in that space rocky shoegaze type genre, in my opinion. Um, what I love about it is just there's these multiple movements, melody changes. And really, I feel like a lot of that stuff showed up in, in Craig's later work with Pascal, where there was a lot of uh, melodic changes and, 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 and tempo changes. But I, obviously, Pascal was a little more pop forward. So, you know, with that, I'm really excited to play this. It, it's one of my favorite songs. It's one of my favorite songs on the label. From the third release on Audrey's Diary, this is Eskimo Summer by Asha Vida.
So the Asha Vida single was interesting. I, I believe they had recorded the song already. So maybe it was on their demo. And I, and I, and at that point they were actually called Karen, uh, C-H-A-R-O-N, mm-hmm. uh, after the ferryman in hell who takes you across the, uh, <laughs> the river. river. <laughs> um, but they changed it to Asha Vida. It was, uh, the other guitar player, Dave, it was a, it was actually a classmate's name of his, uh, or wow. it was actually one of his classmates' names. I believe that Henry Ford or, or, or U of M Dearborn, one of the two. Yep. So they just liked this woman's name and, and, and chose it. Um, so that was the A side, but they, it's funny. They were, they were all composers to a certain degree. There was a lot of tension within that band about, what to do, even though yeah. Craig was in many ways, the leader. Um, and so they couldn't, it was a combination of them not wanting to quote, waste a song on the B side. <laughs> and also <laughs> the fact that they, um, I think they all wanted ha- to have their say. So that's how five, one minute long tracks ended up happening. <laughs> I kind of wondered um, about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was really, I mean, it would have been better if it was just a second strong B-side uh, single uh, because their their demo certainly had uh, many, many good uh, tracks on it. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of just a nod to the fact that they couldn't decide and they, I don't think they wanted to give up a song, a second song to a, you know, a tiny label and, and they, they wanted to do something kind of out there, which also kind of uh, was a harbinger for what was to come with them. Mm-hmm. where they really abandoned song structures entirely um, and was just uh, like literally a freeform space rock yeah, experimental sure. act. Um, but you're exactly right about the, um, the arranging aspect of Eskimo Summer and how that later showed up in Pascal. Um, Craig, is, uh, Craig has the ability to write an incredible pop song and he's done many of them and... Um, but he is an arranger by nature. So he tears things apart and puts them back together. In fact, the first song on the Asha or on the Pascal record, um, was it? I was married to Luke and Laura. Um, yep. That album is it over the piano. Maybe. Oh boy. I can't remember. Well, the, the, sec- the second song the, is just so good. So I can't remember what the first song was. Well, the, the first, first song is called All the Vogue She Sold. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, that's right. That actually was a song that Craig and I co-wrote. Um, and it was an improvised demo. Like, he was playing drums. Uh, I played a bass line. And then we said, oh, that sounds good. So I then played guitar over the top. And I played Fender Rhodes. And then he disappeared and came back like 10 minutes later with some lyrics. And then sang the lyrics and so the demo of what we have at that is very much in an eskimo summer vein but without all the changes uh more of a kind of a galaxy 500 ish type song Mm -hmm. and then if you listen to the version that ends up on the pascal record it is just gutted and in in the best possible way i mean the way he rearranged it and and no parts repeat, um, yet there's a through line in the melody, uh, is just a tremendous, it's, it just, it shows Craig's tremendous vision. And that's something even to this day he does. I mean, I think earlier you had mentioned he's prolific and to a certain degree he is, 
but he has uh, he has so much unreleased music oh, because he is it's a combination of perfectionism and also because he he is an arranger mm-hmm. he he needs to have these songs not just be these linear um journeys and he's so talented at it and i'm sure it takes a long time to put those things together well i thought you know i i know we're getting off topic but i i thought that i had heard somewhere that that album took them forever to make because it just there was so much tinkering and changing and twisting and um I don't remember every every album craig has worked on or every song is taking them forever to make i mean they're there was supposed to be an Ashavita album on Bada Bing records mm-hmm. and they just never finished it. Oh, geez. Um, so, I mean, yeah. The, uh, and yeah, it's just, it takes them forever to do stuff. The great part is he's been writing music for his daughter. Who's a, a really talented singer. Yeah. And you can just tell he's cranking it out and sort of in a way it's just, it's very liberating from, I mean, the songs are great. I mean, he, she's she's a great singer and he's a great arranger and they're kind of these funky <laughs> hip hip hoppy soul type type tracks but that's what i mean is he, he he can knock that stuff out so quickly but for him you know for me that's a finished song for him that's that's the initial sketch right so. it's the beginning yeah yeah no that's really i need to get him on here that's going to be something i'm gonna yeah for sure this is this is the part of the interview that i've frankly been looking forward to the most i mean i mentioned that you know, I was a huge Veronica Lake fan, and you know, I I think I've got most of the singles and and releases on comps here. Uh, my favorite though is is the Threnody seven inch that you guys did at the end. Um, I believe that was the last release. Um, you know, I I think it's the finest moment in my opinion for the band it, at the time. I guess I really didn't know there was no internet. I don't know if I really knew that it was near the end for you guys. Uh, I guess, you know, one question I'd like to ask you is what kind of, what really led to the end of Veronica Lake? I mean, was it, was it life got in the way or, I mean, creative? I mean, was there something that made you guys just kind of stop creating? Um, It was, it was, I mean, the, the, the moment we knew we were done is rather funny. Um, Just in the sense that we were, we went up to Charlevoix, Michigan, Mm -hmm to play the drummer's sister's eighth grade graduation party. Ouch. And um, uh, just as, you know, as a fun favor and sure. go to Charlevoix in the summer. But um, but it was just like we were just playing in the driveway and it should have just been sort of a low key fun thing. But um, with got, without going into specifics, it, it ended up being not that <laughs> and for no good reason. And um it was just it was just one of those things like you know what i think we're done it, it was sort of like uh, a culmination of the moments like that happened up there yep. it was just like okay you know if we can't even pull it together in the driveway for an eighth grade graduation party <laughs> maybe we should just take a break you know i was i was upset when obviously that was the end of it but again i think you guys really finished at a high point at least in my opinion so loved well, it that- the, the funny part is that wasn't even the last thing we recorded. Um, oh, really? That was just the last release uh, because it, I mentioned earlier, it was actually supposed to come out on Slumberland. Oh, that's right. And um, they had the tape uh, for like a year. Pam, Pam Berry had come up to sing, uh, mm-hmm. to record those songs specifically with us. Um, 
uh, Threnody was the A side. That was a relatively early Veronica Lake song. Um, actually, both of them were relatively early. It, uh, Threnody was something I had written, uh, and just I had used the the words from the Dorothy Parker poem Threnody, um, oh. which they ended up remaining in the chorus uh lips that taste of tears they say mm-hmm. are the best for kissing but um but when i handed it off to tim to sing he's like you know i want to do i want to write new words for this mm-hmm. so he he did and and i believe they even changed a little bit once we recorded once we went in to record it because there's a line in there uh where he says trading crash for seam and what mm-hmm. it, and that was specifically uh, I believe Tim gave Pam his crash seven inch. Remember <laughs> Kurt Rowski's pre ultra vivid scene band. Oh, for sure. And she gave him her seam seven inch. Um, <laughs> S E A M. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's where that line came from, but yeah. So, uh, and then the, the, the B side, um, in the clouds was one that we, that, I think Tim maybe even had written that before Veronica Lake, but um, oh, wow. just a tremendous song. Like, uh, oh. and I and we and, and we as uh, a band agreed those are our two strongest uh, tracks, and that's why we we, would, we were excited to have them on um, Slumberland. And it, the other thing about about that single is um, a lot of our other releases were like, "Hey, do you guys want to do a song for this compilation or this?" Um, you know, a split seven inch or something. Mm-hmm. And depending on our finances or even um, like, this <laughs> sounds like we we're like Ashavita, but like, we don't want to give the, give this tiny label one of our songs. <laughs> Let's uh, save the good ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, maybe. So, you know, so some of the songs were like written for compilations or written for split seven inches. Whereas these were, these were songs that we played a lot that we had down pat um, and then to add, be able to add Pam singing uh, with Tim was uh, just icing on the cake. And we, we, um, we wait, yeah, we just waited for a year. Some, some blend didn't release it. And we, I think we even had trouble maybe even getting in touch with Mike. And then once we broke up, it was just sort of like, you know, let's just get it back. And um, so I, I put it out, I want to say maybe about five or six months after we had broken up. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Cause I think we, I think we broke up like in, in June and the, and the record came out like that fall. <laughs> that must've been a strange feeling. You know, not really because we no. were all still friends. Yeah, um, like, you know, like late, uh, the drummer and I moved to, dc within a few months of each other i i went in the spring and i think he came at the end of summer um but no i mean we were i mean the band ended but we we all still saw each other socially tim and i record shopped all the time um it was i mean it wasn't ideal i mean you know whatever you're in your early 20s you're emotionally stupid yep band i'm i'm of the opinion now bands should never break up and <laughs> and um you should just keep making music with your friends so you know live and learn i love that i love that saying your band shouldn't should never uh break up you should just keep making music with your friends i love that yeah so that's yeah, what I it's mean, about so 
Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it's, it was the finest moment. I think it, I mean, frankly, it's, I think it's the finest moment on the label as well. And, um, it's, yeah. it's hard to top. And normally I, I, I've been, I don't know if you've noticed the theme has been, I've either played the song before or after I've asked you about it. I'm actually saving, uh, the Veronica Lake songs for the end. Cause those are my favorite. So we won't right. be listening to those just yet. So the next release was the, uh, Comet and Melodies volume one release, which we, you know, we talked about a little bit. I think we may have touched on when we were talking about Asha Vida. very much an interesting detour for the label. Uh, I, I, I was a little bit surprised when I heard it. I don't know that I've really had heard anything like that to that point in my life. Uh, but it featured you on one side and Craig on the other as Thumbling and Sabine, uh, definitely a the the cover has got a, a craft work look to it I, I think it i think it may even be similar oh it's the uh, straight lift that's what i thought yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's the straight um, lift of the radioactivity yeah record. it's funny yeah. because when i bought it i'm like well, this looks really familiar um but yeah it's the thumbling release which is which is pretty neat uh showed up on that southeast of saturn compilation that we discussed earlier on third man uh, i guess i wanted to know a little bit about and you had kind of you kind of tipped me off a little bit on the on the next release by talking to Warren, but what was it like working with Third Man? I mean, did you have much contact with them at all during that? So not for Southeast uh, Saturn. They, they just worked with the artists themselves. Okay. Um, I mean, again, I, I, I had the da the DATs for Ashavita and the Comet and Melody stuff. I just never heard from them. Uh -huh. um, so I, I, yeah, so I didn't have anything to do with that. With that. And in fact, I, I really found out um, I knew it was happening because again, Craig had contacted me, but I, I didn't even when it, I didn't realize it was even imminent until I saw that trailer with the, yeah. with the Ashavita song. I, I guess, you know, obviously I'm, I'm going to ask you to kind of get in their head a little bit because it, it was, you know, I, I like what they do. I mean, I like how obviously, you know, they've got, they put out obviously Jack's things and, and things that Jack and the, and the label find, but some of the, some of the reissues and things like that are, I mean, they really kind of take you in areas you've you've never maybe heard before, or you know, things that were important to Jack. One thing I've wondered about this, and I don't know if you ever heard it. And if you didn't, just say, I don't know. But I wondered why they why they found that 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 period of time when this music was coming out of Detroit was important enough to dedicate it to a compilation. And that compilation, I believe, like has been re repressed at least once. Yeah, it has been. Uh, yeah, why do you? I mean, why do you think that that they they found that, or I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of asking you to get in their head a little bit, but why do you think that they felt that it was that important to do that? Well, they, I, I don't know the exact setup of of sure. how the label works, but um, you know, there's a few guys that that work for it who I think bring their ideas to the table, and um, so there's a, there's a guy named Rich, who is the one that really put Southeast Saturn together, you know, he, he had not only had singles, I think from back in the day, but like sort of went out of his way to locate a bunch of um, records from that era. And he, he just put it together and, and brought it to uh, Dave, uh, who's another person who um, bring ideas to whomever. I don't know if it's Jack himself or someone else, but um, you know, they're, they're just dedicated to uh, documenting Detroit music. I mean, that's why they've done like the L7 compilation, which is Larissa from Laughing Hyenas, her pre-Laughing Hyenas band. Yep. They did all those tremendous uh, Laughing Hyenas reissues. Um, you know, it's just, it's part of, I think it's, 
I mean, Jack White has proven over and over that he, even though he doesn't live here, he loves Detroit and he yeah. puts his money where his mouth is for the cultural um, things, whether it's uh, Negro League baseball field, you know, being redone or, you know, putting out compilations of uh, obscure Michigan space rocks. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was really I, I was like you. I think I heard about it. I want to say the trailer was the I think it was a Wendy and Carl theme trailer and it was i mean i remember i got like goosebumps when i saw it because obviously mm-hmm. i i knew i think i had the seven inch and i had seen them live prior and i'm like are you serious like is this a joke i mean i think they, they may have flashed on there maybe some of the bands or something and i was like oh my god like i not only had do i love a lot of these i've seen a lot of them live and we probably even played shows with a couple of them and that was pretty yeah. exciting to see that on third man at the time so Pretty excited to hear that there uh, may or may not be another one. I'm I'm pretty excited to hear that. So you know, I guess we're gonna jump into uh, one of the song, one of the Comet and Melody songs by Thumbling, uh, which Chris and I just spoke about. I, you know, I I guess I'd kind of call it space rock, a little ambient. I mean, there's a lot going on here, uh, but it was featured also in the Southeast of Saturn compilation. Um, which, you know, for those of you who haven't heard it, I, I really either stream it, buy it, just do something because I feel it's a pretty important compilation. It's, it really focuses on uh, shoegaze, dream pop, space rock scene of Detroit in the early 90s, which frankly, for those of us that lived through it, it really Detroit wasn't known for that, but that scene was very, very vibrant at the time. So with that, I'd like to go ahead and give Butterfield 8 by Thumbling a spin.
So, you know, I, that was great. We heard Butterfield 8 by uh, Thumbling. Uh, there was one more release that came out, and it was uh, the Emily's number 777, which, uh, you know, Chris has already mentioned. He had the fanzine. He had Emily's Hip Pocket. There were a couple other variations on that. Uh, but it did come with a 7-inch that featured Bark Psychosis. Uh, I think it's Jessamine. I think that's how you say it. I have a couple. There's 7 inches, too. Yeah. And uh, Buddha on the Moon. You know, in, in my circle at the time, Bark Psychosis was, like, a really big deal. I mean, I think Hex had either just come out or was going to come out. And that album, I mean, at least for me, was very, very important. Um, mm-hmm. How did how did this release come out? I mean, what made you decide to go ahead and put a fanzine together? And, and how did you seem to get some of those bands i mean particularly bark psychosis i mean they were big well the the fanzine was simply be, it, it was like i i liked several fanzines that that did similar things where they put seven inches in there and yep. i since i had already, i was already doing a fanzine I, I just thought it would be good to put them together um in the, in this type of package um you know a lot of I mean, I, I'm think, thinking back to your original question about like labels that influenced me and, and there's a lot of referential things throughout Audrey's diary. Um, you know, we weren't, we, I, I don't like the Royal we, it was literally me. I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, the things I love, I love, like I lifted the Kraftwerk radioactivity cover directly and I named the EP Comat Melody after the Kraftwerk song from, mm-hmm. from the um, from the Audubon album and like from 1974. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was sort of like, well, fan, you know, some fanzines I like are doing this, so I'm going to do it. It was, you know, it's just sort of like every it, there was just a lot of referential things, and so like the 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 fanzine since i was already doing one and i was already releasing singles it just made sense to do them yeah, together for sure. in terms of interviewing bark psychosis they they actually were not that i mean they were a buzz group within i yeah. suppose the nme melody maker world but I, I like i don't think they ever sold very much um and they they i was a huge fan of the the singles they put out on shea records mm-hmm. um uh like just uh just the 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 scum record the scum ep they did the the first two 12 inches which were just an a and a b side and then compiled onto a four track cd i i mean i just thought those are incredible and i and while i liked hex a lot i for me it was the stuff that they were doing that was sort of this miles davis talk talk inspired stuff um that i that i liked a ton um, and so the Hex album, I think, had just come out on Astral Works. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up interviewing them. It was literally just, uh, you know, going through the publicist. Sure, um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, to me, that was, I mean, that was a big deal because, you know, we were listening to, to Hex and, and, and I think, was, what was the first, the first other album? Was it Independency or was it a compilation of singles? In, Independency remember? was a compilation of those right. early singles that I really loved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we were they listening to later. all that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause I didn't, I didn't know about all those early singles as much. Obviously there was no internet. So I got into yeah. it a little bit later, but when I heard Hex, I mean, the first track was at the loom. I mean, my chin yeah. was like on the ground. I had, I just, 
like that that fretless bass and everything i yeah. just love that and so then when you know obviously when your when your fanzine and seven inch came out i'm like wow he got he got them to talk and that was pretty good um well and know, it was you know the 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 left turn that the label took well it wasn't necessarily a left turn I, I mean the comet melody thing was like a was different from a lot of the other stuff but it was you know i was just discovering all these space rock these german space rock records and uh, i remember going to wazoo records in ann arbor and talking to john who still owns the place um and just saying oh you know i really like this brian you know record discrete music and he's mm -hmm. like oh have you heard cluster and and at this point these records were i mean maybe stereo lab was talking about that stuff um and certainly talking about noi but that you know the stuff hadn't been reissued and it was not that well known at least no. um at least and it, so like I, it's not like the cluster records and the noi records and the tangerine dream records that i bought from wazoo were they weren't they were actually not out in the bin john's like now nah, i got them back here behind the counter because nobody <laughs> wants them right so you know it was like literally buying this stuff going oh my god this is amazing and i just had not heard the stuff and then i realized that's where like bark psychosis and talk talk yeah. were partly inspired by these these types of groups and um because that contemporary wise like the contemporary music scene that i or music that I was really loving like bark psychosis and talk talk uh, I, did, I didn't have the reference points that they yep. did at that point. Um, so to discover these records, you know, at Wazoo or, you know, these electric Miles Davis records and things like that were um, just incredibly eye-opening to me. And so, you know, and again, I, I was stumbling across like these analog keyboards that were not, um, at the time they just no one really was interested so i got like a moog rogue for 25 dollars from a garage sale oh my goodness um i found an arp odyssey um in the next to a trash bin at a goodwill in ypsilanti oh um i still have both of those keyboards um <laughs> so it was just like like sort of exp you know like and being a fan of stereo lab and reading the interviews what they were talking about and it's just like you know i, I want to do this too i want to make sounds and so and you know ambient music at that point through techno and dance music was a was kind of a big thing, big thing yeah. and so the comet melodies was just sort of a response to all the ambient music we we're listening to and then when the fanzine record compilation came out it was you know it was pretty space rock heavy it was less about indie pop by that point um yeah, for sure and that's what i was saying like my listening jags like it's not like i was not listening to indie pop anymore it's just that the things i wanted to read about or write about um or the artists i wanted to speak to were sort of working more in the in that realm and um so both the the contents with le bradford interviews and bark psychosis interviews and then the the music with jessamine um Buddha in the Moon is, you know, maybe more on the dream pop side, but, um, you know, it was, it was just sort of the, where my head was at at that point. Yeah. You know, I, and it, it, and it's funny now, I mean, as we're kind of ending this interview, you're starting to see that, you know, what, what you were putting out is really whatever was kind of rising to the top at that time. And it, it sounds like it, it was really, it kind of ended with that dream poppy, uh, bark psychosis and, and, 
kind of influences back to the 60s, which it's funny you mentioned uh, Stereo Lab because I think that was really my entry point to a lot of that. I mean, I, when I heard it, I was like, I've never really heard anything like this. But then, like you said, when they were talking about their influences, it made me go back and connect all the dots. And, um, you know, you kind of got to see the origin of all that. And I loved all that stuff at the time, just like you did. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it started becoming a little more, you know, as, as CDs took over and it became a little bit easier to reissue that stuff yep. became much more accessible um, and it garnered a, a wider audience. But um, like in those early nineties, like it was very much me going, you know, dust, you know, digging in dusty bins and finding yeah. stuff and then frankly trying to emulate it. Um, and, and the reason why I stopped the label at that point is I, I, moved to Washington DC in spring of 94. And I think it was concurrent with uh, that, that Emily's number seven coming out. Um, and so I, you know, I did my due diligence with putting it to distributors and getting it to record stores. But at that point, you know, I was, I was in a new town. I was, you know, starting to play uh, in bands down there. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it was just something that like took, went on the back burner. Um, uh, I, you know, I, it was helpful to do a, a large portion of Audrey's diary when I was living at home with my parents. I mean, <laughs> it, it started, uh, I think it was in Ypsilanti actually when I started, but, um, you know, just having a little bit of disposable income because I didn't have, um, rent to pay, uh, sure. was helpful. But when I moved to the DC area, um, I don't know, it just sort of, it took a backseat. It was a lot of work. I, you know, I didn't do the fanzine again, either in part because I started writing professionally at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just sort of a natural end ending point. Um, and I, you know, and I, I didn't even, it was, there was never a time where I even considered like relaunching it or, you know, there was not something in the, um, you know, something that I was lining up to release that I just never put out. Um, it was just like, that was the last thing. And then I was just done. Yeah. You know, I guess it's, it's kind of the moral of the story with a lot of, a lot of us at the time. I mean, life just kind of gets in the way and priorities shift. And in your case, I mean, you moved and you were doing new things. And so it just kind of naturally ended. And I can tell you here, I was, I was disappointed. So uh, thanks for disappointing 23 year old Brian over here that there were no more releases coming out. <laughs> 23 year old Brian and probably about 22 other people who had actually even heard of the label. Oh, that. no way. I mean, we loved it. I, it maybe it was my circle. I mean, I, but I, again, my connection and my gateway to that was Veronica Lake. And, you know, yeah. I think whatever, you know, whatever you were doing, I was going to be into. And, you know, it's, it, it was, it was a sad time for me when, when, when there were no more releases. And, you know, that was, maybe i mean that was before the internet it was over and so you really didn't know what happened i mean it's just you couldn't find out what yeah. happened i guess one of my last questions for you regarding the label then we'll kind of just one question about kind of what you're up to but um is there anything looking back on the audrey's diary years that you would have done differently um that audrey's diary i mean that it to me it feels like an art project you know it was like we we you know the, the way that sarah records did their 100 releases and then yep. called it a day yep. you know like i i put care into each release i think each release has a kind of distinct look while sharing this sort of overall aesthetic and i, I feel comfortable with with the way it happened I, I think probably the only thing i would do differently within 
my music life at that time is what I said is I, I just the idea like if you find people that you you enjoy playing with music with just keep doing it yeah. we have people get caught up in being in bands and things like that and the politics of bands and the certainly when you're in your early 20s and you're borderline and you know everybody in the is just kooky going through their <laughs> as their brain still developed for a few more years um you know it's just it's a shame that so many so many groups just stop because of all that that type of stuff um i mean that's why i mean like i said we've all everybody in veronica lake has been friends all these years we did the reunion show in 2015 uh september 2019 tim and i played um a veronica lake set with uh, fred thomas on drums um wow. at ziggy's in in ypsilanti and oh. that was a um in in part a tribute to uh, tim's brother scott sandra who who had died of of and and it was sort of our way to sort of i don't know just pay tribute to him sure. and um so we did we did uh the so we did Veronica Clake's Daisy Kiss mixed with the down song, Chip Song. We sort of like blended oh, them together. Nice. Um, so, I mean, and Tim and I have recorded a few songs um, since I moved back to Michigan. Uh, I moved back September 2016. Mm -hmm. um, we've recorded a few songs uh, with Fred playing drums. Um, I don't, again, they're not, <laughs> some, some are more <laughs> finished than others, but I sure. mean, it's like they're, they're it's just we it that really is just been down to priorities and yeah. life life getting in the way but um you know we still play music together I, I i continue to play music with scott kelly the drummer and and sabine nice um in dc and then you know if i'm sure if he was in michigan we'd we'd all still play music together well, just remember, I mean, with the uh, the miracles of the Internet, I mean, you guys could do a, you know, an album and never see each other. <laughs> well, you know, if any of us were more talented technologically, I'm sure that would have happened by now. But um, we it's I don't know, it's I, I was I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of uh, because I still do make music. It just doesn't seem to get finished. Uh, yeah. And I still make music with friends. And obviously the pandemic has sort of put a wrench in that type of stuff, but um, you know, it's just, um, I, I still, I, I still feel best about making music when I'm in a room with my friends. Yeah. So yep. some of the, some of the, some of the long distance stuff that I've attempted to do, I mean, it's, I've gotten some results and some, un, you know, many unfinished songs and things like that, but um I just still prefer to do it with with pals in a room. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd like to kind of end it there because I think that really says it. I mean, the I think for those bands, and I won't name them, but they're out there and you probably know who they are, who do the long distance, you know, swapping of tracks and everything. They They do it for the product. They do it for the end result. They do it to release a record or whatever. But, you know, I think ultimately and i think you said it best that's why i want to end on that note is i think you did it because of friends and and i completely agree with you i know the feeling i know exactly what you're saying and um you know like you said earlier on i mean 
we shouldn't stop making music with our friends. And I think that was really probably the quote of the night here. Uh, you know, I guess to kind of close out the discussion, which frankly, Chris, I mean, this has been uh, maybe a little bit overstated, but this has been like a dream come true for me. Um, it took me a while to even reach out to you. I wanted to make sure I was ready to talk to you about this um, before I did it, because it does mean that much to me. Uh, we, you know, we talked about that Veronica Lake single that came out on the label that you put out that was originally going to be on Slumberland. I didn't know that. I, I, I saved it to the end. Uh, it is, frankly, one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, it was released at the perfect time in my life. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I feel like Veronica Lake was really at their finest hour at that point. So, you know, with that, I want to go ahead and give Threnody a spin. And again, Chris, thanks for joining me today and reminiscing about Audrey's Diary. It's really been my pleasure speaking to you. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you for shaking the cobwebs. I appreciate it. <laughs> That's awesome. Take care, okay? Okay, bye.
hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. This is episode 12, and we just heard a track by Veronica Lake, which is Christopher Porter's band, and it is Threnody. And I really, really love that track. Uh, it means a lot to me. Uh, I've got the 7-inch. I've listened to it so many times. It actually doesn't even sound really good anymore. Uh, but, you know, in Christopher's uh, just really, really nice and kind way, he actually sent me a nice digital rip of it that I've been listening to uh, quite a bit. So one of the questions I keep getting from the listeners here is uh, what made me start this podcast? And so I'm not really a professional podcaster. I'm not a broadcaster or anything like that. But I got the idea for the podcast while listening to yet another podcast. And it is called I Already Told You That. It's Melissa and Brian. And they spend typically an hour listening to uh, an artist's full catalog or selections of a catalog. And really the premise is that Melissa uh, is always playing music around the house and has been for many years and talking about music. And really (laughs) what she does is she asks Brian at the beginning of the episode, Uh, who the artist is after playing a small clip. And whether he guesses it or not, they spend the next hour discussing it, listening to different tracks, talking about the artist, uh, the artwork, all the different things that I've always liked to get into as well. So Melissa and Brian, if you're listening and you are still on board here uh, after that long interview, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the inspiration. Please keep up the good work. As always... You can hear this episode and previous episodes of the Vinyl Detroit podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. That would either be something like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and others. I always ask the listeners here to leave a comment, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts uh, in hope that maybe others will find this. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me during this great discussion with Christopher Porter of Audrey's Diary. And we're going to close out this episode by hearing one last track by Veronica Lake, yet another one of my favorites. It's actually the B-side to Threnody, and this is In the Clouds. Thanks again. (laughs) 